recent weeks, we continue with Romans chapter 8. Lord willing, I will worship once again in the great sanctuary of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in the city of Philadelphia. I want to share that I'm not a Presbyterian in some areas of my doctrine and uh, certainly of certain areas of practice as well. But I want to say that faithful Bible preaching church in the city of brotherly love all these years has had an impact, a significant one on my own life. A generation ago, its pastor was the noted expositor, Donald Gray Barnhouse. I only know of him through his writings and his recorded sermons. He was especially remembered for taking some years to actually preach through this great book of Romans. Successor to Dr. Barnhouse for many years was Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. To Dr. Boyce and his ministry, I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude for shaping my own biblical theology. Not only that, but for the impact his teaching and preaching had in my personal knowledge and walk with the Lord. You can tell that I'm in days of reflection lately. You might expect that. Thirteen years ago, in the summer I came to Good Shepherd Church, Dr. Boyce, at the age of only 62, was rather suddenly taken home to be with his Lord and Savior. Dr. Boyce had also preached through this book of Romans, and I'm privileged to have his four-volume commentary on the epistle of Paul to the Romans. A total of almost 2,000 pages of wonderful commentary. One of the highlights as I'm in this reflective mood over the years was a time now many years ago when I actually was invited to share the platform with my mentor, Dr. Boyce. We were together in a Bible conference uh, with trembling, I can assure you, I brought my part of the conference and he was the keynote speaker and uh, much surprised that a couple of weeks after that time of preaching together and fellowship together, a letter arrived handwritten from him and uh, commending and confirming my own call to ministry. Uh, I've wanted to frame it and hang it on the wall, but then again, that might seem a bit too pompous. I certainly was built up in those earlier years of my ministry to have someone of his caliber encourage me in my ministry. I was especially gratified when a couple of years after that, the commentary on Romans by Boyce came out and I was looking at Romans 8, of course, and I discovered not recently, but a while back that he had borrowed uh, information and an illustration of biblical truth from me out of that conference, and it actually made its way into his own commentary. This was just uh, things that not all of you may appreciate, but thanks for letting me wax on here a bit. I want to say that it was rare for Jim Boyce to make any references about his personal 
life. He was a very private individual while having such a public life of wonderful theological preaching. I was struck with one personal illustration, however, he used in preaching and then writing on the subject of where we are in these days, Romans 8:28. I'd like to share his words uh, with you, his illustration. He shared one of mine. I'll share one of his illustrations. He says that years ago, I had a watch that my father had given me when I graduated from high school. It was an unusual watch in that its back was transparent. You could look into it and see the mechanism working and the wheels turning. Some wheels went forward, some went backward, some turned quickly, others turned slowly. There was a large mainspring and a few small hairsprings. There were levers that were popping up and down. And then he says, the Christian life is like the parts of that watch. At times, the events of our lives move forward quickly and we sense that we're making fast progress in being made like Jesus Christ. At other times, events move slowly and we seem to be going slowly ourselves or even slipping backward. Sometimes we seem to be going up and down with no forward motion at all. At such times, we say things like our emotions are on a roller coaster or that we just can't seem to get on track. Our lives have petty annoyances that spoil our good humor. Sometimes we are overwhelmed with harsh blows and we say that we just can't go on. It may be true. Perhaps we really can't go on, at least until we are able to pause and catch our spiritual breath again. And Dr. Boyce continues. But God has designed this timepiece of ours, this plan for our lives. That is the point. It has been formed, quote, according to his purpose. The exact phrase that we'll focus on in this 28th verse, chapter 8 of Romans. He says that's what our text is about. And it is because we know this, that God has a purpose. It's not because we always feel it. We do not always see it, but we can always go on with this great promise. And he says, what can possibly come into our lives that can defeat God's plan? There are many things that can defeat human planning. Our plans are often overturned by our sins and failures, others, opposition or jealousy, circumstances or our own indifference. But not God's plans. He is the sovereign God. His will is forever being done. Therefore, you and I can go on in confidence even when we are most perplexed or cast down. God's purposes always succeed and they are always good. It was a Good Friday in April of 2000 that Jim Boyce kept an appointment with his physician to hear the results of certain diagnostic tests that had been recently completed. He was told that very afternoon that he had a very aggressive and ultimately fatal form of liver cancer. 
Dr. Boyce left the doctor's office and that Good Friday evening preached the gospel to his congregation, saying nothing about his diagnosis. He then preached again a very powerful Easter message the following Sunday. Just eight weeks later, he would be consumed by the cancer and enter the presence of the Lord. I don't know of a time in my life when I wept so openly and so long, and I still choke a bit 13 years later. For this man had set a pattern for my own preaching and pastoral labors. This man who taught so many about the sovereignty of God would speak one more message to his congregation at the point where he could barely stand at length in the pulpit. I have here his words, the last words that he spoke to his beloved flock. First, he thanks the congregation for their expressions of love and concern, and especially for their prayers. And then he said this, Above all, I would say pray. Pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father 12 legions of angels? But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. And then he says, if I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. We have talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad had slipped by. God does everything according to his will. We've always said that. But this dying man said to his congregation, but what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but he doesn't care. And then as only Dr. Boyce could deliver it, it's not like that. God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. And then this convicting question, it's haunted me for 13 years. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, he says, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do. In God's province was his will to bring this servant home to silence his 
great voice from the pulpit at the age of 62. I hope I haven't taken too much time with such a personal story, but my purpose in all of this was to review with you the biblical teaching of Romans 8:28 by using a personal testimony of one of God's servants who not only preached it, but lived it right up to the moment he placed himself at the feet of Jesus. Today, in this ongoing study, I want to focus on the word purpose in Romans 8:28. The word purpose. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In an earlier message, we noticed, uh, noted that those who love God, for whom God is working things together for good, that those who love God are those who have first been loved by him. So Paul wants to reassure us that things working together for good really are not ultimately contingent on how well we love him, but on his divine calling that made us to be people who now love him, which God purposed to do, we learn, even before the world was made or even man had sinned. And certainly, like Jacob and Esau, before they were even born, God's redeeming work was love in action even before time. I've often pointed out that the Lamb of God that John the Baptist said has now come, the Bible describes as the same Lamb who was slain even before the foundation of the world. This is why Paul will move on from verse 28 to verses 29 and 30. He's telling us, look, God does his will. Nothing nor no one can thwart his purpose. And the good news is his purpose is good for his redeemed. Look at verses 29 and 30 and some of the, uh, the marvelous uh, words that are packed in uh, to these two verses. Verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose is Christ likeness so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren to the glory of Christ. We read in verse 30, these whom he predestined, he also called. As Paul writes elsewhere, called out of darkness into his marvelous light, called out of sinful death and decay into life itself. These whom he called, what did he do? He also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I always love the fact that the Holy Spirit guided Paul's writing to put that word glorified, our final destination, in the past tense. And though even we are not yet what we shall be when we see him, we shall be like him. But in Paul's theology, for us to gain heaven, for the redeemed to win heaven and to be made conformable completely to Christ is already a done deal. Just like the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. If he justified you, he will glorify you. 
And he, in the meantime, will work everything together for good. The foreknowledge of God, the predestination spoken of here, the divine calling of God, the justification and the glorification, all of these these wondrous theological terms. But there's one thing we would say about all of the terminology. And that is that salvation is of the Lord. Such wondrous words have everything to do with God. Nothing to do with our works, our efforts, or even our weak love and commitment to him. In other words, Paul wants to make sure that we understand the promise of Romans 8.28 rests entirely with him. Aren't you glad that's the case? Let me hear an amen. You can encourage me in these last couple of opportunities I have by saying amen if you agree that the truth is, in fact, very glorious. His purposes in saving us, Paul's saying, will not be thwarted. He cannot fail, for he is God. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the fact that if God is at work, then the result has to be good. Because out of his own character, out of his intrinsic nature, the very essence of God is good. He cannot do evil. So, let me show you why. As we consider this key word, purpose, adds to our great assurance. I'll put it under some tags here. One is the foreshadowing. I want you to consider for just a moment the foreshadowing of God's unfailing purpose. By this, I mean that the whole history of God recorded in the Old Testament, for example, should teach and reinforce for us that God is a God whose purposes cannot fail. How often did Israel prove unfaithful while time and again and again God Remained faith has remained faithful. How often did God especially use incredibly difficult and bad things in the life of Israel to accomplish his ultimate purpose, which is always good and for his glory. Now, I mentioned it just in passing uh, last Lord's Day, but I want to look at it in just a little bit more detail and we'll move on. But the story of Joseph, I mentioned it a week ago, who being cruelly sold into slavery by his own blood brothers who just as soon murder him. You know how the dramatic story unfolds. And Joseph, years later, after so much suffering, is face to face with those brothers again. And his response to them is like... A prophetic reference to Romans 8.28. Why I use the word foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing. It's a story. It's a narrative which foreshadows the promise that will come to us when Paul puts his quill to parchment and gives us Romans 8.28. Let me, I didn't do this last week, but let me pull out a few of the biblical phrases recorded back there in Genesis. I won't have the time We won't have the time to have you turn there. But these are the words he speaks to these brothers who are shaking in their boots or sandals, I guess. He tells them it was God. It was God who, quote, sent me before you to preserve life. 
To preserve life is a good thing. We say that all the time here. God is very pro-life in every sense of that word, isn't he? And then he mentions the famine. But then he says again, and God, it's God. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, as the story unfolds through the pages of the Old Testament, we know that God was actually using Joseph's life for such a time as that famine, as Joseph just said to his brothers to preserve a remnant. Beloved, that remnant is that remnant out of which the Messiah, our only Lord and Savior, would come. And so he concludes the story. And you know the words well. He says to his brothers at the end of this discussion, You meant evil against me. And make no mistake, it was truly evil on their part. I think it not too much to say their deeds were inspired of the devil himself. Satan knew well about the remnant, what it might mean. You meant evil against me. This this is our life. This is the this is the paradox, the glorious paradox of our existence as redeemed people. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. He works all things together for good, he's telling his brothers. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive, because prophetically it would protect the line of our Lord Jesus Christ so that in the fullness of time, not just Joseph's present time, but in the fullness of time, One like unto Joseph would come and would be the Lord and Savior. Now, Joseph's story, of course, is only one of many. The whole Old Testament, if you think about it, is a testimony to God's unfailing purpose. I want you to get that aspect down when we talk about the purposes of God. It's an unfailing purpose. I want you to say the two words with me, unfailing purpose. It is unfailing purpose purpose of God. He is still at work. He knows the number of hairs upon your head because he is sovereign and is omniscient. But more than that, as Dr. Boyce would say, he is ever and at the same time good. Now, there's another Old Testament connection I would draw here. I I want to make uh, about this foreshadowing of God's unfailing purpose. It relates to the literal meaning of, of the Greek word, the Greek term for purpose that the Holy Spirit selects for Paul to put on his parchment. The Greek term translated purpose is prothesis. And I examined every New Testament usage of the word and was intrigued as I did that to find a certain Old Testament connection. Paul's use of the word purpose, its literal meaning from the Greek, and everywhere else it occurs, points back to an Old Testament picture again. 
And uh, the gospel writers speak of it. Matthew, Mark and Luke. We won't take time to turn to those passages. Let me give you a passage where this same word is employed that points back to the Old Testament shadow and the new covenant substance. It's uh, Hebrews. You again, don't need to turn there. I'm only going to do this very briefly in chapter nine, verses one through three. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, even the first covenant, that is the old covenant, the Old Testament, it had regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, where the lampstand and the table, and then he says, and the sacred bread or the showbread. This is called a holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Now, follow me. That's a little bit studious here, I suppose. The reason prothesis was used for the showbread when it's mentioned in the New Testament is because the word literally means to set before, to put on display as the twelve loaves of showbread were purposely set before the face of God in the tabernacle. Bread. Bread, the very sustenance of life itself, is set before the Lord for seven days, and then it is eaten by the priests. I sometimes wondered if it was kept miraculously fresh. I've had day-old bread and don't think a whole lot of it. This was seven-day-old bread and the priests were told to eat it. But anyway, it is an offering. It is the bread of God. It's the bread that Jesus had in mind when he declared, I am the bread of life. The bread of his presence. And then the food that it would become for the priests. And Hebrews is teaching that lesson that it's not a class of of believers who are priests, but the priesthood of all believers. That's all of us. We eat of this bread before the face of God. In other words, it's foreshadowing our communion with God through the bread of life himself, who is Jesus Christ. The foreshadowing of God's unfailing purpose. Say it again. Unfailing purpose. One scholar has written this. These 12 loaves set in the presence of Jehovah, signified the constant communion of his people with him in all things, which his bounty provided and they enjoyed in his presence and used in his worship, in his service. Let us break bread together on our knees is a reference to not only what we, brothers and sisters, to do in our tradition, usually the first Sunday of each new month, we take the bread of communion and the cup. Let us break bread together. But the real meaning of that truth is that you and I together are actually breaking bread and entering communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a showbread. So let me add this. The all things that Romans 8, 28 talks about, the all things of our lives and God's what his unfailing purpose are set before God's faith and become the bread of our experience 
proving Him to be with us in every way, providing for our good and His eternal purposes until it's time for the next feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Prothesis. God setting our very lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. The intense and dark and mysterious things and things like affliction and suffering and eventual death on this side of glory. And, and like showbread, he sets his communion with us on display. Ephesians 1 tells us the very reason he redeemed us is so that we would be to the praise of his glory. That is his purpose. Well, there's the foreshadowing. He is in the all things. He doesn't just work the all things together. He's in the all things as he indwells every believer by his Holy Spirit and brings us into constant communion with Christ himself. I want to talk to you now for a moment. Only moments remain. The functioning of God's unfailing purpose. By this, we mean the process of God working things out for good. The process by which he is working things out for God, for good. How does God himself function or by what processes is he at work in our lives, ensuring the end result of all things, that they will be good and that they will be for his glory? I want you to note, as I remind you, we spent, uh, I think, a message all by itself in the earlier verses before verse 28 of verses 26 and 27. Here's what we read there. In the same way, the spirit, Holy Spirit, helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints, look at this, according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit himself, third person of the triune God, has the ongoing task of praying for the redeemed. One basic request that God's will would be accomplished in each of our lives. And since we do not know how to pray all that well in such an important matter God ensures that his spirit will carry that out. And let me give a, a, another narrative illustration of that truth out of the life of Peter. Jesus had said these words to Peter and said them before Peter's awful spiritual failure in denying his Lord. You know the story. Here's what Jesus said in advance of that event. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I want to tell you that in 35 years of pastoral work, I do not exaggerate. There have been some circumstances in the course of seeking to remain faithful to the proclamation of the God, of the gospel of God. I have encountered situations, circumstances, and even people with names and addresses. And I would sometimes say in the privacy of my own 
home and relationship to my wife and in my prayers before the Lord. This whole thing has the smell of sulfur on it. This is Satan's work. Simon, Satan has demanded permission. Aren't you glad that's there? To sift you like wheat. But here's what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. If you were to look only at the narrative of how quickly Peter, in the heat of trial, out of self-preserving fear, denies his Lord and the rooster has crowed. You would think, how did Peter ever make it to be the first pope of the Roman Catholic? Oh, no, that, that's a little skewed. How did, how did Peter ever make it? This is the answer. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. In fact, working together for good, he says, Peter, when you are turned again, when you have repented, you'll be in a position, he says, to strengthen your brothers, other believers. Why? Because really Satan has desired to sift any one of the redeemed. And his purpose is always to have their faith fail. The great intercessor, which we had time, we don't, to turn to John 17. It might be good afternoon reading where Jesus is praying that high priestly prayer. It's sometimes called in the 17th chapter of John. And he is guaranteeing in his request to the father that you and I will be kept from the evil one and preserved The fulfillment of God's unfailing purpose, this point, will only take a moment. It is when we see Christ, I repeat again, we shall be like him. In the meantime, this process of working things together for good in the midst of every circumstance of our life is called sanctification. He's making us ready for glory. He's shaping and molding and sometimes breaking Sometimes causing us to weep so that he may, in fact, dry our tears and then show us how he could take the worst thing like the worst thing in Joseph's life and turn it out for good. If I may borrow from you just maybe another five, seven minutes. The next pastor you get, I understand the first qualification is going to be 30 minute sermons, right? Hope you can find someone. Who can do that? I never succeeded very well in preaching within my time limits. But I want to share one more testimony. I, I really hesitated all week to share this because my message began with a personal narrative of relationship that I had with my mentor, Dr. Boyce, and it was lengthy. But I'm going to close with another narrative because this just came to me this week. And in some ways, my heart was... So open to the truth of Romans 8:28 again, when I received word from a pastor friend of mine, from my days in New Jersey, he's in the midst of his darkest hours right now. Just 18 days ago today, his 29 year old daughter departed her parents and entered the arms of the Savior. 
So in closing and again reviewing the truth in Romans 8, 28 and 29 and underscoring, underscoring God's purposes, may I read what he wrote this very week and I'll let you go. For a dozen or so years, our daughter Jean has suffered unspeakably from maladies and no more levels, physical and otherwise, than I could begin to adequately explain. The infection that ravaged her central nervous system, the years of sleeplessness, the constant nausea, the passing out and the many falls and concussions that came as a result, the severe and relentless headache pain, the haunting hallucinations, the struggles with confusion, the blood clots, the systemic infections, and so very much more, all in the extreme, made her life the most severely agonized I have ever witnessed. Amazingly, yet true to form, she found moments of laughter almost daily. We delighted in her company even while hurting for her. But the suffering became increasingly severe on as many fronts. And as we watched her suffer, how we prayed, how we prayed often in despair that God would deliver her from it all. God, who in grace had rescued her in Christ from sin, loves her even more than we do. And so we trust his providence. He's too wise ever to make a mistake. He's too good ever to do us wrong. And we acknowledge that just as he was free and sovereign in giving Gina to us 29 years ago, so now he is free and sovereign and good and just in taking her. He has not wronged us. Indeed, not only do we affirm this great truth, we rest in it. This God is himself our father. A father who knows what is best for his children and faithfully directs our lives accordingly. Moreover, he is the father who in love one day gave up his own son to bear our curse in order to redeem us to himself. Yes, of course, there are many why questions that we cannot answer, but we lack no proof of God's love or his goodness as we bless him today. Just a day or two after the lowering of the coffin, we bless our God with even deeper passion. We are so very grateful not only that God gave us our daughter for 29 years, but also that in grace he saved her, made her his own. This is really everything. Everything, he says. And we recognize that we are blessed to know that Gina is rejoicing today in the presence of her great Redeemer. How she loved him. How she loved the gospel. Gina was marked by passion in everything she did, but nothing so stirred her like the gospel of Christ. She loved to hear it. She loved to learn it more deeply. She loved to sing it. She loved to share it with others. Her whole hope was in Christ. Virtually every day, even in much pain, she would sit down at the piano to play and sing and refresh her aching soul with some of her favorite songs about Christ. God's love in Christ, salvation in Christ, God's faithful love and providence and the glory that awaits us. And this same gospel is what assures us still. And we rejoice that neither death nor life nor anything else in all God's creation 
could ever separate Gina or us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that, by the way, Lord willing, is our text for next Lord's Day. We've come better to appreciate that our hope in Christ is not for this life only. We eagerly await the day of Christ's return when we will rejoice together in his glorious presence and discover for ourselves that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Scripture assures us that one day God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. He says, I doubt this language. And you've got to know, Dr. Fred Zaspel, that this language was not intended to make us envision a gigantic handkerchief or some kind of cosmic hug. I suspect rather that this comfort will come by means. And this is so true of further revelation that God will enable us there to see things from his perspective, to see his wise purpose as he has worked it out in history unerringly for the good of his people to his own glory. There at last, with this fuller understanding, all mourning will be turned to joyful praise. And he closes with these words. And so even in our loss and we do grieve. We do not doubt that for all eternity, our song looking back will be, quote, our God has done all things well. And having received that, I thought, how can I respond to my friend with something other than the typical cliches? And I thumbed through the scriptures and I came across an extraordinary verse about God's sovereignty in the book of Job. And I quickly wrote back only a few words in the midst of his grief. And I quoted this text. God, he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands heal. His hands his personal involvement in our lives. I no sooner sent that off in my email than my cell phone rings. And my own 24-year-old daughter, with shaken voice, through the tears, says, Dad, I've just been involved in a terrible accident. She was leaving her third grade class, pulling out on the Highway 41 from Taylor Ranch School. She crosses that every day in her car to go back to her home when a truck driver ran the red light at a good rate of speed. She said when the light turned green, she said, I always just hesitate a second or two, even though I got a line of other teachers in back of me wanting to get home. Just to be sure, I always do that. I did that today, Dad. It's not my fault, she said. This truck collided with the little Toyota Yaris. It wasn't until some hours later I saw the wreckage and thought, Oh, Lord, you delivered her from, a, from death. Car totally demolished. Her foot jammed between brake and hump in the middle of the car, some soft 
tissue swelling and bumps and a whole lot of being shaken up. And I recall that God, those very moments, is still causing all things to work together for good. We pray that the incident itself would bring redeeming purposes into my daughter's life, into her husband's life, into our lives as a family, and he's already at work. But just having read my pastor friend's testimony, I know that if the truck had hit her broadside and ushered her into glory, that that too would be his perfect will. 